audio. It was intimidating because it goes from I'm working the moves to I'm trying to send and I'm not sending. Every fall, I'm not sending, I'm not doing it. So that can feel really hard. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to The Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're psyched on outside of climbing. Now today we're chalking up for a chat with one of the most impressive climbers in the game, y'all, as well as a damn fine human being, Michaela Kirsch. Michaela, who's still in her 20s, has been crushing for decades now. She's the first woman to climb both 515A and V14, that's 9A+, and Font 8B+, for our international listeners. Now, the 515, of course, was La Rambla, and as you'll hear her share today, she doesn't feel that that was at her physical limit. In fact, she seemed to put it together so dang quickly, it feels like she's got plenty of room to push her grades in the coming years. Now, other notable ascents for Michaela include the 14D 9A ascent of the Dream Chris Sharma line Dreamcatcher in Squamish, a first female ascent of another classic Sharma route, Necessary Evil, and pretty much everything over at my home crag, the Red River Gorge, including the 14C FFA of the Golden Ticket. Now on the blocks, she's got a few V14, font 8B plus to her name, including Tigris Sit and New Baseline, both in Magic Wood. And perhaps what's more impressive than her incredibly impressive tick list is the fact that she's done pretty much all of it while being a full-time student and youth coach. She's quite possibly the hardest sending weekend warrior in the world, and while she could certainly make climbing her sole career, she has dedicated much of her time and energy to obtaining her doctorate in occupational therapy, spending her quote-unquote rest days in scrubs working with patients in the hospital to be able to get them back to their regular lives after a debilitating injury or life-changing procedure. If y'all want to get psyched on what we are all capable of accomplishing with busy lives and limited time to train, you are in the right place. All right, just a quick minute here to share what's been going on in my climbing and training world as I continue to claw my way towards the fall season here. Now, if you tuned into the last episode that I did with Eric Hurst, you know that I'm diving into endurance training as I prep for my 13-day fall project. And I'm not sure about you, but when it comes to training up specific energy systems like that, I can get pretty overwhelmed with options and also confused on what even qualifies, like what qualifies for endurance versus power endurance. So I've been taking the guesswork out of my fall training by pulling workouts from the Crimped app. You guys know that I love Crimped. I've been using it for years to program and track my workouts so that I can hit the right systems and also, maybe as importantly, avoid overtraining. So right there in the app, they break their workouts into energy systems. And right now I'm pulling a few of my workouts from the endurance section, including one-on-one-offs and their 50-50 mixed intensity laps, which I've been loving. That's all part of the free version of Crimped, y'all. So you can just check those out, or you can dip into strength and power training or whatever you're wanting to work out, no cost at all. And then if you want to level up and you want to have like a six-week training plan loaded right onto your phone, taking all of the guesswork out of it, you can give Crimped Plus a shot, and I'm loving that. I'm working through their base endurance plan right now, which is only two and a half hours of activity per week, you guys. It's not a lot that I'm adding in because they make it very, very efficient. And that's designed to have my endurance peaking in six weeks, the end of October. I'm so psyched. Y'all, this app is truly like having a coach in your pocket, and it is so motivating to see each day's workouts and check them off. I am far more consistent with my training when I'm programming everything with Crimped. I get to the gym, I do the work, nothing more, nothing less, and then I am out which gives me more time to make podcasts for you. So that's a win-win, right? Hit that link in your show notes or just search Crimped, C-R-I-M-P-D in your app store to check Crimped out for free. All right, real talk here, y'all. I am like a kid on Christmas morning recording this right now because, oh my gosh, drumbeat, please. Scarpa has come aboard as a sponsor of The Struggle, and I am just beyond psyched. You guys, my very first pair of climbing shoes and approach shoes were Scarpa's, and I've just been a massive fan of theirs ever since. I'm rocking their instincts right now for my pockety overhung proj, and they are a dream. They're just like the most well-designed and manufactured shoes around. Whether you're looking to smear granite like Amity Warm, toe into overhung sport like Maddie Hong, navigate volumes like Nathaniel Coleman, heel hook like Alex Puccio, or expedition like Jordan Cannon, y'all Scarpa has gotcha. 
They've been sustainably making the best footwear for climbers, trail runners, skiers, and hikers since 1938. And that sustainability call-out isn't just lip service, you guys. They're trailblazers in their commitment to sustainable production, carving a path for those of us who seek not only peak performance, but also a planet that'll be preserved to be explored for generations to come. Man, they're doing it right. I love my approach shoes. I love my climbing shoes. And I think you will too. You can shop the whole collection at scarpa.com. Check it all out. They're so good. Scarpa, no place too far. And lastly, just a big thanks to all you patrons and subscribers out there. If that is you, thank you. You not only get this episode ad-free, but you also get some exclusive bonus content with Michaela at the very end here, so be sure to stick around for that. And if you're not a patron or subscriber, it's all good. I still love you, but I would love for you to consider it. So I'm going to tell you more about that at the end here. But first, let's aim high and clip some chains with Michaela Kirsch. I'm just going to um, adjust some levels here. So I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. It's the summertime here. But the Hi. red is the home crag, Michaela. And I know for a long time it was your home crag as well. So I want to get some, as I'm doing my sound check, I want to get some beta from you on the red. The proj that I've picked, I'm trying to punch into 13 this season. And so okay. I'm, I'm focusing on the force over at the dark side. Have you spent some time over there? Yeah, I love the dark side. I, it's one of my favorite places at the red, probably. Oh, that nice. It's puppy. <laughs> it's hard. I think. Yeah. Hard to a jug, right? And then kind of just puppy to the top. Yeah. Pockety, hard moves to a good jug. But then from what I've heard, because I haven't even been to the chains yet, I've been on it a few times. I haven't made it to the chains. Is It's like kind of like a mid 12 run to the chains, a few bolts of that. And a lot of people feel the force of gravity pulling them off around that point. So, I'm yeah. really going to need to train up some endurance and I want to talk to you about that in, in one of our chapters here. But yeah, I didn't know if if you had any like inside scoops on the force or maybe I'll just have to I beat my head against it. Once. Did you flash it? Of course you did. So you've been on it once. But I do remember there is like a heartbreaker move at the top that people like right underneath the chains that people drop sometimes. Yeah, that's a good flash because I've heard that it's pretty sequency up there and, and a little heartbreaky. Like you can you could definitely punt up there. Well, good for you on, on the flash. I, I have nothing to learn from you. I need to talk to somebody who spent 20 goes on it so I can get some actual bait. Yeah, and it's such a good wall too because they're like all the routes there are so fun. And if you get sick of the forest, you can just try one of the other ones. <laughs> yeah, I'm psyched. Well, thanks for talking about the red. Do you make it out here much anymore? We got Rocktoberfest coming up. Do you ever come up? For the good um, times, you've climbed it all. I, I I was out there last fall when Alex was there. Oh, that's right. I think we just kind of crossed paths because I saw Alex at Eric's place or where Alex was staying in Yannick. Uh, I think you were there, but I just maybe you guys weren't hanging out at the same time. Yeah, I was there. I was supporting him on his project. I don't have a ton of roots left at the red that I want to yeah. focus on, and I think a lot of them are just super hard. So I need to be like in peak sport climbing shape to go there. And sometimes it's hard to train to go back to the red when I've spent so much time there. And, and there's so many places I haven't visited yet. Yeah, totally. I, I get it. Well, well, we'll have you back whenever you can come back. I was talking with Jonathan Seagrest on the show about this too. He's like, yeah, there's still some stuff for me over there. You know, he's, he's still got some 515s in mind to bolt, but he thought they might be you know, a little brittle. And so he wasn't sure, but uh, of course we got Southern Smoke Direct. So that's, that's one that can be, uh, some time can be put into as well. Yeah. That one is tough though, because it's really just the same thing as Southern Smoke for 95% of the route. Right. <laughs> so that's like, that's a, I don't really want to go back and climb Southern Smoke again, just to get the 9A points, you yeah, know, just to throw like a V12 or whatever the kind of the boulder start is to it. Yeah, I'd rather just go bouldering if that's because people literally will bring crash pads to try that climb. So yeah, well, I got yeah. a buddy who's working on it, and he ordered the mimic holds, so he's just been working on the boulder problem in his garage, and wow. so he can that's crazy. go out and just take care of it. Well, I'm sure we'll dive into more stuff on the Red River Gorge here in in just a bit, but 
I'd like to zoom out for a second here as this is the struggle climbing show and first just talk about struggle and what your view of struggle is, how you would define struggle through the lens uh, of climbing as a, as a rock climber. I think part of what makes climbing so interesting is that it's very challenging. What draws me to it and what keeps me in the sport for so long is that you can improve in so many different ways, but there's always going to be another challenge, another route, another type of move or maybe type of hold that you can improve upon. And I think that's really exciting to me, just that it's a never-ending opportunity for growth, really. And what's your relationship with that? And maybe it's evolved or maybe you've always kind of had a, your relationship has been like kind of a stasis, but different people are met with challenges or respond to challenge in a different way. And so when you really hit that struggle in your climbing, how do you handle that? What's your view of that? I think I would like to say that I welcome challenge and struggle, but realistically, a lot of that depends on what else is happening in my life and maybe what stage of life I've been in at the time. There have been times where struggling and working really hard and climbing has been really rewarding and in a positive experience. And there's times where it's kind of pushed me away from the sport in some ways, and I've needed to take a step back and kind of refocus and, and realign my priorities and, and work on other parts of myself besides just the climbing side and then come back to it in a different in a different light. Yeah, well, I appreciate you sharing that. I think as we dive into some of these chapters, I want to peel back on that a little bit. I think you you do bring a pretty unique perspective to professional climbing with regard to the other passions and professions that you have and the balance that, that you seem to have always been able to strike going back to your youngest years in Chicago and making the commute to the red, which I do want to talk about a little bit more. But let's dive in first now to, to kind of the training chapter here. You've been training for quite some time. You've been climbing for the better part of your life at this point in time. Where have you struggled in your training or where are you currently struggling in your training? I think... My training and my approach to training has changed dramatically through almost all the stages of my life. Growing up, I started out on a climbing team, like a competitive climbing team. So I had a coach who was you know, responsible for writing all of the workouts that I did every day. So all I had to do was show up and it was pretty structured in a way, but it was like low impact for me as far as motivating to do it and, and to write it. So I feel like that served as sort of a foundation for the way that I train now and the, and the way I structure my workouts. But when I had left the competitive climbing team and climbing for the first time sort of became my own, I think I didn't really train. My approach to climbing was just to enjoy it and to do it when I wanted and to try and travel where I wanted. So I kind of had like this pure period <laughs> where it wasn't very performance driven. I was developing my own relationship with the sport as, as an individual. And then I went to college and afterwards, shortly afterwards, graduate school. And my training was really kind of just filling the only free time I had. So trying to maintain a fitness level that I felt comfortable with only a few hours a week. So I would focus on maybe a spring break trip or a winter break trip and try and get as strong as I could, but knowing that I didn't have the time resource that I needed to be able to push myself to that level. And after school, now I can really focus on my training similarly to how I did when I was younger and ha I have a lot more time. And I think that's why I'm seeing a lot of improvement in my climbing performance on a lot of these trips. My approach is, is a little bit more thorough. <laughs> right. Well, let's go back in time for a second, because I think unique to most of the athletes that I talk with on this show, you did not have unlimited amounts of time to train. Training and climbing were not the number one and two priorities, but that essentially makes you a weekend warrior for a long time. In Chicago, you would come down to the red and that was a heck of a commute. You would train during the week in the time that you had. You had school, you had other obligations, you had family things, but you would train, you would focus, and then you would come down 
and have a very finite amount of time to try to perform. Sometimes the conditions are good, sometimes they're junk, but you're still coming in because that's the time that you have in your schedule. And myself, and I think a lot of people who are listening to this, who don't live in a van and can just, you know, kind of make whatever schedule they want, it's um, a similar struggle that we have, or if not a struggle, perhaps a matter of scheduling jujitsu where you have to try to make it kind of all work. So what did you learn from that? What did that teach you on how you structured your training? Through those times, I developed really strong time management skills. And I would start each semester or each chunk of time writing down a schedule. And it was really important that I made the schedule realistic. So I would put in time, downtime, chill time, mental health time, but also training time. And oftentimes I was only climbing about an hour and a half and maybe three weekdays. So like a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Monday, Wednesday, Friday, whatever my work and school schedule allowed for. And I think only having a short amount of time made me develop these really robust training sessions where I could get a lot done in a short amount of time. It was extremely goal-driven and I didn't just sit and hang out on the crash pads or under the moon board and chat with my friends. Like I had a, a plan that I needed to accomplish and a set time where I needed to leave. And I think that approach served me really well. And the most important thing that I learned in that time is you have to be consistent with when you show up because as soon as you set the precedent of sticking one or skipping one training session, then you're skipping the next and the next. And all of a sudden you've developed this habit where you're not prioritizing your climbing. And I think that's coming back to what I said earlier, that it needed to be a re realistic schedule. Planning to have that downtime was super important because it also allowed me to do the hard things too. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear that you planned like chill time. I really like that because oftentimes we don't think of planning in that sense. We think of planning like this is when I'm working, this is when I'm trying, this is when I'm going. But to actually schedule in that chill time, it seems very highly regimented. I respond to that. I'm very type A, like I usually have a schedule for every day that I do. I'm curious, bring ourselves current here now where you don't have to plan out every single minute of every day. Have you maintained that structure into a life now where you have more freedom or has your training scheduling or your outlook on training shifted based on your current availability? I try to bring in a little bit more balance into my life now because I have to admit being in school and training as a professional climber was extremely demanding and not the type of lifestyle that I want to sustain forever. <laughs> so I do try to create a little bit more balance in my schedule these days. That being said, I am working part-time and I do schedule my work days on my rest days and I try to pack my climbing days pretty full. <laughs> so I do, when I am in a training cycle, it is scheduled, it is planned. I do have all of my set workouts on the days that I want to do them but I have given myself a little bit more grace surrounding that. <laughs> You've earned it. Are you self-coached or do you work with somebody to help with these plans? I'm self-coached. I've been climbing a really long time and I feel like I, at this point, have developed workouts that I think work really well for me. And, you know, just with how my schedule changes all the time, I think it's just easier for me to do it myself and I have those skills, so. Yeah. Well, and you were a coach for quite some time as well, so you certainly have those skills. All right, let's get nerdy for a minute here as we round out this chapter. I want to talk about power and I want to talk about endurance. So we'll talk about power first. You seem to love training on the board. It's something that you used to build up power and strength when you were working La Rambla, I believe, and even while you were in Sierra on days where the weather wasn't very good. But also, you seem to just enjoy it as a part of your regular training routine. I really struggle on the board, which I think probably means that I need to do a little bit more of it. So I'm curious how you work the board into your regular training and if you use it to specifically try to mimic certain types of moves or projects, or if you just generally enjoy it and it's more of a fun thing than skill building. I think there's been sort of an evolution of 
commercial gym setting away from hard power moves and more towards this competition style. And that can be really fun and really exciting. But I think for my outdoor climbing, it's not super applicable. So I found that on the moon board or the kilter board, you have a boulder of maybe five moves and all five moves are really challenging and really hard. But on a commercially set boulder, those five moves might be maybe one of them is hard. So in my training, I incorporate the board climbing because you get a higher volume of crux moves, of really difficult, challenging moves. So I'm being challenged more often and for longer in my sessions where I'm board climbing. Yeah, I think that really encapsulates board climbing very well. Basically, every move is freaking hard. Uh, and how often are you working that into a training week? And are you also combining that with other like max strength or power type finger exercises or, you know, pulls from the ground, these kinds of things? I would say it definitely depends if I'm training for a bouldering trip or a sport climbing trip. But either way, I would say that 95% of my sessions happen on a board. And that's because I use them for four by four workouts, for circuit workouts, pure, just limit bouldering sessions. And I would say I primarily stick to the moon board and the kilter board because I think that they off can offer a lot and they're very different from each other where the moon board maybe incorporates this element of finger strength because a lot of the holds are quite a bit smaller than the kilter board. But I think yeah. because the kilter board has those larger holds, you end up with a lot more dynamic, powerful movement, which is has been historically a weakness of mine. So, <laughs> And if you're doing like endurance type training, four by four training, is that on a kilter and you're maybe taking the angle a little bit, you know, less steep or are you just doing easier problems? I thought you were going to say more steep. <laughs> I, I typically, Maybe. when I'm doing, <laughs> when I'm doing endurance, like pure endurance, um, a workout that I like to come back to a lot is trying to do 50 moves on the moon board just continuously because all of the holds are pretty bad. So you get pumped no matter which oh ones God. that you're grabbing. And 50 moves to, on a moon board at 40 degrees? It's brutal. You're um, a monster. Prior to La Rambla, I actually like increased my fitness enough that I could do it at 50 degrees. So that was really cool. That's incredible. So, okay, 50 moves on a moon board, and that's not necessarily doing problems. You're literally just running, like running laps on the moon board, essentially. Yeah. And not resting, just trying to get through the 50 moves as quickly as I could and get as pumped. no jugs on a moon board. I mean, I guess for you, there might be a couple jugs on a moon board, but you're not sitting and shaking out. You're trying to do 50 continuous moves. Well, this takes us nicely into endurance training, which we talked a little bit about at, at the beginning when, when I said I was working on the force at the Red, where it does require some big endurance. When I had your buddy Nina Williams on this show, just recently, in fact, she said that you were very helpful in as she was looking to train up endurance while she was working on whether it was China Beach or just essentially going from like really strong bouldering into like the sport world. And I believe she she said that you defined endurance as an ability to recover on a route on either good holds or bad holds, less about just kind of never getting pumped, but essentially being able to recover when you do get that rest. And certainly in most sport climbs, you are going to get a rest more so than a moon board. So if you are trying to really top up or really fill up that endurance tank. Is there something that you're going to be doing that might be in addition to or separate from like a 50 move circuit on a moon board? I think to train that recovery piece, a lot of times after I get super pumped, whether it's sport climbing, doing circuits, what have you, I'll try and shake out on a hold, preferably not a jug, all the way until I've de-pumped just to get in some ways, mentally comfortable with the feeling of being pumped on a hold, because I think that can be a big challenge when you're projecting, you know, oh, thinking in your head, I'm more pumped than I want to be. I was less tired last time. But if you can sort of train the sensation of trying to recover and not panicking, I, I feel that that can be a really useful tool. But also there's obviously physical advantages to training that as well. And I'll try if I have a specific route in mind, I try to structure my training in a way that imitates that route, obviously, to prepare me. 
as best I can. Yeah, I like that. And will, will you do that like on a tread wall where you'll try and do a certain amount of moves to arrest to mimic the route that you're looking at? Or essentially, how do you replicate? You can use La Rambla as an example or, or, you know, any number of other things, golden ticket or something like that. You know, if you know it's 30 moves to arrest to 20 moves to a boulder problem, that kind of thing, how are you trying to emulate that? I think that I don't get as specific as counting actual moves. I think it's more of a general approach. And using La Rambla is a great example because I had friends who had done the route before me and were able to provide me with some information on what might be helpful. And the crux on La Rambla is, some people would argue with me about the grade. I would say maybe a V8 boulder problem, but it comes after a really sustained, powerful section so the one of the ways that I practice for that is by doing 35 really pumpy moves into a V8 moonboard problem <laughs> and then shaking out following. And I felt like when I arrived at La Rambla, this isn't the only tactic I used, but I was extremely well prepared. And I think that part of it was the approach that I used to training. Hell yeah. I love that. I'm psyched. I'm ready to... <laughs> To move on to nutrition here, unless there's anything else in the training chapter that you feel we could have touched on? No, I think bored is life. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree, but I'm trying. I'm trying. Do you? Um, well, I think you disagree because it's a good challenge. It's true. I struggle with discomfort associated with struggle. So I, that's when I know I need to go at it more. I need to do more moonboarding and more sloper problems. But I'm a Red River Gorge climber, so I don't know. What's the point? Those 50 moves on the moon board will get you up a lot of climbs at the Red River Gorge. Oh, my Gorge. God. Michaela, I can't do seven moves on the moon board. 50 moves on the moon board, she says. Let's talk about nutrition. And where have you struggled in your nutrition? I think this is such a hot topic in climbing right now. And my relationship with nutrition has changed throughout my career due to personal experience, due to sort of this societal perspective in climbing. I, and I think just being a young girl in climbing and now a woman, you know, obviously my perspective would change. But I've tried to maintain a relatively healthy approach. I think obviously climbing is a strength to weight ratio sport, and that's where a lot of the struggles come from, being light for climbing. And I personally haven't had too much struggle with losing weight in an unhealthy way for climbing. I've tried to respect my body for as long as I can. And I think that's where a lot of my longevity and performance comes from. It's a tough, it's a tough subject to touch on because I think there are like really big problems in the community and really strong opinions. And without having had a ton of personal experience in that, it's hard for me to know how to approach it. Yeah, I mean, you really nailed it in in that it's A, a hot topic, but it's also B, very individualized. It's very personal. It's really hard to speak kind of for the sport in anything. So it's just a, a personal experience. I have seen you post or, or perhaps talk about body image and these kinds of either pressures or insecurities that can be put on climbers perhaps female climbers even more so, although we all know that male climbers can struggle with the same thing. So I'm curious what your perspective on the comp scene is with regard to nutrition. When I was a competitor growing up in climbing, I was fortunate in that social media definitely wasn't, it, what didn't exist yet. So this like global lens on what a competitive climber might look like or should look like. It didn't exist yet. And on top of that, we also didn't have live streams for the events. So we weren't watching all of the World Cups. We weren't watching all of the national championships. That wasn't available to us yet. What we really consumed was magazines and who we saw at competitions. And I think because of that, it didn't seem like such a, like visually, it wasn't as prevalent to me of like, this is what a competition or a professional climber should look like. Sure. That being said, growing up on a competitive climbing team, I was pressured by my coach to lose weight. I had like a goal weight for events and my body was 
sometimes criticized privately and sometimes in front of the climbing team at a whole as a whole. And that was extremely difficult, extremely challenging. And I think that it has impacted my relationship with myself and my body moving forward. But I was extremely fortunate to have had such a strong sense of self and a really sort of defined way that I wanted to approach climbing as an individual and what I wanted my life with climbing to look like. And at the end of the day, I wanted to climb forever because I really love it. And I think that I've chosen a path that supports that. Good for you. That's really wonderful to hear. And uh, I hope inspiring too for a lot of people who are listening. When we now in, in today's age, there is quite a bit of social media. You're, you're performing at the absolute top of the game, but also that can also make you more of a target. You know, ha has that been an issue at all since you've been on Instagram? Honestly, no, <laughs> thankfully. Oh, great. Oh, my God. I, I, <laughs> for humanity. I know. I think I get I do get a lot of feedback on my body and what I look like, which is interesting in itself. But almost all of that feedback is really positive of people messaging me, maybe saying, I look like you. And I used to think that was maybe an obstacle in climbing, but, you know, it's not. And, you know, I think a lot of people can relate to me or feel like they maybe have a similar body type, which is really cool to, to see. Sometimes people will tell me that, like in the gym or something, that I don't look like I, you know, I'll send a boulder and, and they'll be surprised that I did it because it doesn't look like I should be able to do it. Huh. And I think that sort of goes with this, this generalization of what a professional climber should look like, what a strong climber should look like, you know, and I think I'd like to just see a little bit more openness to, to anyone can be a strong climber or a good climber, you know? Hell yeah. Yes. I love it. All right, good. Well, we can round out this chapter with just uh, getting nerdy for a second on what you like to consume to perform, whether it's, you know, when you're training hard and you want to recover, um, crag snacks before you get out there and you try a hard red point, like what, what's your, what are your go-to nutrition hacks? <laughs> I definitely have a sweet tooth. That's something that I know yes. about myself. Um, <laughs> for example, when I was in Spain, working on La Rambla, they have these like chocolate filled cookies and I would have one cookie every night with a glass of wine. And that was like just my me time to decompress and just enjoy the day, you know, because it can feel hard. And so I'm not very restrictive with myself. I do try to be mindful. I eat a well-balanced diet. I have a huge garden and chickens. So I try to eat a lot of produce, but that being said, like I, if I want to eat pizza, I don't restrict. I eat pizza or I have a beer. And I think that's just part of the balance. It's part of longevity. And I think because I can be pretty um, controlling over my own climbing and my training that I really try to be mindful about not starting that same mindset regarding what I eat. That's really potent, that perspective. I, I appreciate you sharing that. I think that you tend to see in a lot of climbers a bit of kind of type A and, and wanting to measure every pound that they're putting on a hangboard and every minute that they're doing their training and to not have that carry over into nutrition, to kind of put up that barrier there seems like a really healthy perspective, a really healthy way to do that. Thank you for sharing that. That's really That was really refreshing to hear. The, the other thing that struck me too, Michaela, is that I mean, you sent La Rambla pretty damn quickly. Do you think the secret is cookies and wine? It could be. Don't quote me on it, but it could be. If it works for me, it could work for you. That's right. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick breather here to shout out a couple of the rad sponsors here at The Struggle who are also offering you exclusive deals on their cool stuff here. First off, Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. Y'all know I've been a paying customer of Fizzy Vantage for a couple of years now, and this stuff is truly just the best of the best if you want to level up your training and performance, and I know you do. There's a few Fizzy Vantage products that I take every day, whether I climb or not. 
First, I always start my day with their organic greens powder, which I just shake into some cold water. It's just the best way to start off each day and support my immune system and my digestive health. I know I'm getting all that good greens in my body before I do whatever else I'm going to do to it that day. I also take their Mag ATP, which is a magnesium supplement every day, which many people are deficient in. I didn't know this, but like 70% uh, of people are deficient in magnesium. And among many things, that helps me to sleep better and improve my muscle function. And lastly, I take their supercharged collagen every day to support my tendons and my ligaments so that I can train harder and recover faster. If you're looking for that extra edge, hit that link in your podcast app. Or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 at fizzyvantage.com to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition order. And this episode is also supported by our friends over at Frictitious Climbing, who have really changed the game when it comes to how and where I hangboard. Have you all seen this? The revolutionary doorway mount is just the coolest. It allows you to do a full hangboard workout without drilling, screwing, or mounting anything permanently into your walls. You just pop it into your doorway and then mount any hangboard that you want to it. I love the boards that Frictitious makes, and they'll give you 20% off when you buy one with this doorway kit. But you can also just mount any other board that you have. You can hang heavy, or they have a pulley attachment that you can grab if you want to reduce the load, like I do when I'm working on one-arm hangs or if I'm doing endurance repeaters. If you cannot drill a board into your wall, whether you rent or you're a student or maybe your significant other just doesn't want a chalky hangboard always on display like mine, you can store this under a bed or wherever and in seconds pop it into the doorway, get your workout in, and then make it disappear. It's such a cool system. Hit that link in your show notes or pop by frictitiousclimbing.com to see it all in action, and you can get 20% off a hangboard when you purchase that rad doorway mount. All right, let's get back to the show here. Let's talk about tactics. This is a, uh, just such a wide chapter. I mean, we can kind of look through the lens of a project if we want to look at La Rambla, or if you're tired of talking about La Rambla, we can look at Dreamcatcher, the Golden Ticket, or uh, Boulders and Magic, whatever, you know, whatever you want to talk about. But I've got some specific questions, but let me just open it up. Concerning tactics, where have you struggled? I grew up sport climbing. So my sport climbing tactics were a very natural and sort of innate evolution just things that I learned climbing every weekend, projecting at the red. Where I struggled maybe the most with tactics was beginning to boulder. My trip to Magic Wood two summers ago was my first real bouldering trip, kind of ever. And I relied heavily on Nina Williams and Alex Puccio to sort of show me the ropes on how do you strategize your day and your skin and your energy and your plan and these tactics, especially in a place like that where they felt like hundreds of boulders that I wanted to do? So that's kind of an ongoing lesson that I'm learning is, is how my bouldering tactics because there are so many. So yeah, hit me with some high points, whether it was um, Alex or Nina that, that recommended something or something that you've learned yourself, perhaps the hard way. I think it's good to have kind of an intro day where you just romp around and you look at everything and maybe you touch the holds on everything and you kind of need to get your bearings, especially like magic wood can feel like a confusing forest. So I liked to make a mental map, figure it out, touch everything, and then start building my list based on what inspired me when I was there looking at it, you know, going into it. Of course, I had some things that were maybe on my mind, like new baseline, but I wanted to be pretty open. And that's something that Nina taught me. She always does this like run around the forest, like crazy intro day for skin and psych and just maybe jet lag. So I think that would be my number one advice. First day of a trip, just kind of go into it joyful. <laughs> the magic wood trip, I think I'm thinking of the same one here. I believe you you had a post where you talked about focusing a lot on anti-style. And that can be hard to do. That's also a, a tactical move is to say, I'm going to go climb things that are maybe below the, the top grade that I could, but in a different style. So I'm curious what you learned by doing that, by taking a look at a trip and saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on some anti-style type projects. So that was my second trip to Magic Wood where I had this list of boulders that I wasn't able to do the first year that I kind of wanted to get revenge on. And I trained really hard to improve my power and just my overall strength because prior, my first trip, I 
wasn't focusing on that. It was more like a, I graduated from grad school. Now I'm going to go on this trip with my best friends, you know? So round two, I really wanted to improve upon the first trip. And I am not totally sure what I had imagined going into it, but it was such a beat down to only climb on boulders that I felt like didn't suit me because mm -hmm. everything felt so hard and I wasn't having a ton of success right. <laughs> because of that. You know, it's like I've already done the ones that suit me. So I'm really just trying these boulders that are extremely challenging and maybe only for me, other people might call these boulders soft in some ways. So I think it took, there was definitely a learning curve the first week of the trip trying to like readjust my expectations and grapple with the idea that I was there to just work really hard and grow as a climber, which can feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, good for you for pushing yourself into that discomfort. Did you learn anything in doing that compared to trips where you go and you focus on just climbing the boulders that you're incredibly psyched on? Kind of juxtapose that type of experience. Did, did you get better as a, a climber, but um, have less of a good time? Or, you know, I guess what's the balance that one might want to strike or that you seek to strike in focusing on weaknesses or anti-style versus peak performance and things that are right in your lane? I think it's re rewarding in a different way. When you're pushing your limit in through the lens of a grade, maybe, and breaking through a grade, it can feel very exciting. Like it opens this whole new realm of possibilities, this whole level that maybe you didn't know was possible or you've been dreaming of. And then rewarding in another way when you're seeing internally your own growth. It's less, it's more intrinsic. It's not an external reward, right? It's like, I'm doing this for me and I know that I'm improving. And these two Magic Wood trips in particular were interesting because after the first one, I had, it was my best bouldering trip ever. And I climbed grades that I never thought I would. So in my mind, it was like, I've peaked. <laughs> I'll never be stronger than I am now. This is like best case scenario for my bouldering. And then right. coming back the second year and realizing, wow, I'm actually even stronger, though the grades not might not reflect that. You know, the, the boulders that I'm doing, I couldn't do last year. And that was so cool to see that I am still in a place in my climbing where I have more opportunity to grow and be stronger and better. I really appreciate that that perspective. Thank you. That's really nice, especially for somebody who's trying to get a little bit more into bouldering. Let's get into some more familiar territory for me. We'll talk about La Rambla. Let's look at it through a tactical lens because next chapter is mental game and I've got a whole rich territory for us to explore there. But tactically with La Rambla, I saw that you wrote on Instagram, I'm going to quote it so I don't get it wrong here that you you could work the moves forever, but it was time to switch into send mode. This kind of gets back to the training that you touched on where you came in piping strong, really prepared. You you had a lot of confidence coming into La Rambla that you could do all the moves. And as you had written on Instagram, you did do all the moves very quickly, like day one or something like that, right? But then you wrote this post, which was like, okay, time to switch into send mode. And that's a tactical shift that one makes I think when you're approaching a sport climb, there's this period of time where you're refining beta and working the moves and trying to string together some clips and some sequences and things like that. And I was able to do all of the moves. So it was very comfortable for me to be like, okay, I'm going to do these 10 moves and then I'm going to take, and then I'm going to do these 12 moves and then I'm going to take. And that's what I meant when I said I could do that forever because it, it felt easy. It felt safe. But there becomes, there's a time in sport climbing where you need to start trying from the ground because you're not gaining any new information about the route anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, you have it all and you need to decide, I'm going to try and do this thing. And I think on La Rambla, that was intimidating because there's this very low crux in this crack. And so you can say, I'm going to try it from the ground, but that can be over in less than a minute. Right. You know, it's like 
12 moves in, there's a crux. And I think approaching that first crux with this sending mentality was important of I'm starting the route and I'm going to keep going and going. And that's sort of the the switch that I was talking about. So, so if you would climb up into that crux, you know, the first 15 feet or whatever, and you didn't pull through the crux, would you lower off? And then it was only ground up attempts at that point on? Right. So that was kind of the change that I made in my mind. Like if I follow this crux and I keep going, then I'm just working the route again and kind of wasting my energy. So I needed to start lowering and approaching it differently. And I think that it was intimidating because it goes from I'm working the moves to I'm trying to send and I'm not sending. Every fall, I'm not sending. I'm not doing it. So that can feel really hard, especially when you're, you can do, you can go up and do all the moves every time, you know? So I think starting to approach it as like, okay, it's time to get serious. It's time to start doing legitimate tries. And that's where I saw this like big increase in my performance on the route. This takes us into the mental game chapter, which I love a dovetail as a podcast host. So let's talk about this for a second and then I'll kind of reset the chapter. But when you get into red point mode, you know you can do all the moves, you've worked out all the sections and you're doing these ground up attempts, these send attempts. How do you handle the early times? And you set the route pretty quickly, but you know, not immediately. So how do you handle getting beat down by a certain crux? Or maybe you make it to a high point, but then the next couple goes, you don't get anywhere near there, you know, so it's two steps forward, one step back. Is there anything that you've learned through mental training to keep the psych, to keep the fire so that you aren't demoralized as Mm -hmm. you get into that red point zone? I think it's about the approach that you take to those experiences. Because yes, you're learning a lot when you're first trying the moves, you know, you're figuring out the holds and the sequences, what have you. But when you start falling on the route, you're learning, what could I do differently to prevent that on the next attempt? Should I, is there a way that I can move my body to make it easier? Should I grab this hold differently? You know, I think every single fall is a learning opportunity that better prepares you for the next attempt. So when I was falling in the low crux, I was learning maybe I need to climb more quickly to get there or I need to clip this from higher, from lower, what have you. And then as I was getting higher and higher every attempt, you know, I was putting all of those pieces together. Mm -hmm. And I think it can feel like a lot of failure. Oh, I'm falling, but I can do that move. But if you think about it more analytically, why am I falling? Then it can become fuel to get you higher. Dig it. Okay, great. Well, let's zoom out now because we're into the, the mental game chapter and we'll get back into La Rambla, but there's a couple other routes I want to talk about as well. But generally speaking, looking at mental game, where have you struggled in that? Perhaps it's different now than it was when you were a youth climber, but what has been or is a struggle for you in the mental game? I can be a very ambitious person. And sometimes that's a really good thing, but sometimes it can feel very hard when I'm not meeting my own expectations. Hmm. And I feel like I can beat myself up or sort of ruminate on some of these darker ideas about myself. And that has been maybe one of my biggest struggles, but I've, I'm, in my older years, <laughs> I'm trying to be a little bit more kind to myself and, and a little bit more patient in that you can't always be at your peak because then it's not really a peak. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, kind of along those lines, I've heard you talk about um, yourself or describe yourself as a serial stressor. And on La Ramba, I think specifically, you, you had written that you were strong enough, but you questioned whether it was presumptuous to think that you could send the grade of 515A. And those are two slightly different things, right? Being a serial stressor and then questioning one's self-worth or one's ability to achieve a goal that they've set. So maybe you could unpack 
those two things? I think that stress is the way that I manage the things within my control. (laughs) And I've gotten better at managing my stress, but it's kind of omnipresent, which is fine because that's part of who I am. And that doesn't work for everybody. But it's the way that I can feel in control of my training, my schedule, my life at large. And even with graduating school and sort of removing that big source of stress, I find other ways to manifest it into my life. So <laughs> that's just part of who I am. <laughs> By the way, I share that. Like, we're, we're going to find something to stress about. So, so you just sometimes have to kind of put your attention to one thing. But tell me about this question of your worthiness to to take on a certain grade. Because while I'll never claim 515A, I, I think I can be faced with similar things. Will I ever climb 8A? You know, I'm in my mid 40s. Is it crazy to think that I could even like set that as a goal? And I'm curious, you were public about, you, you had written that on an Instagram post. And so I'm curious what the thought was around that and then also how you managed it. It's an interesting balance of having enough confidence that I planned an entire trip to go and attempt this route. So some part of me and a large part of me believed that I was strong enough to do it or at least to give it a fair shot, you know. But then, of course, you know, when you're met with this new limit, this new grade in climbing, potentially, It can feel really intimidating. And sometimes I struggle with imposter syndrome of, am I a 515 climber or could I be, you know, and I don't know that until I've tried it. So that's kind of the linchpin is that you have to go and see in order to find out. And that's sort of what that trip was. I wanted to be as prepared as I physically could be. And then I wanted to go and see and take it from there and not really be so concerned with the end result until it was happening, you know? Did did you think about at all what happens if it doesn't happen? You know, like, do you consider the outcomes or are you fully in the moment of being process oriented rather than, you know, outcome oriented? I think it's a little bit of both. I wanted to feel like I was going to commit enough that I could see if it was possible. You know, I I didn't want to just try the route once and then maybe change my mind. I want it to be, you know, relatively firm in that goal. But I did have potentially some other routes in mind if it just wasn't for if it wasn't stylistically for me or it wasn't going to be feasible. And I did leave sort of this open space on the end of my trip where I could extend if I needed a little bit more time. I like that. I mean, it, that all of those tactics are their mental game tactics, but they work to alleviate the pressures that we could put on ourselves and try to tamp down a fear of failure as much as possible so we can focus on doing the hardest thing we've ever done, which you did and you styled it. It's a hell of a send, 515, which is very auspicious, and it's a route that's got such incredible history in climbing. So let's flash forward to after the send. and mentally, what did you go through? What did you experience after the send? I and mean, we can talk about, you know, the experience of clipping chains, but I'm more interested in, okay, what about the days or the weeks kind of following that high point? I was a little bit in disbelief, just trying to take it in and wrap my head around this idea that I've accomplished a goal that was really a childhood dream, you know, something that seemed so outside the realm of possibility. And then it became a reality. And I I, be, I got to this place in my climbing where it was something that I could actually realistically work towards and accomplish. Um, but what was really exciting was realizing that it wasn't at my physical limit. <laughs> I could do something harder. And that's been you know, fueling my fire and inspiring me into this year and next year and all the years after, just that I I didn't find my limit and who knows where it is, but I'll try to find it. <laughs> Michaela, where is your limit? I don't know because climbing La Rambla was so mind-blowing in that on the first attempt when I was just discovering the moves, there were jugs on the route, which like shocked me. Like how can there be jugs on a 515? But there are. And you know, when I think about it more realistically, like, of course there are. There's jugs on 
14 D's and 14 C's, you know, and I've had this very logical progression in my climbing, like no major jumps. So it's not like that much harder in theory, but I had this idea of it that it was something that it's not, you know, there are jugs and good holds and sequences that are within the realm of possibility for me. And when I sent it, I wasn't even that pumped because I was strong enough to do it, you know, and that's been very cool to reflect on and think about and sort of use that as motivation to plan my next goals and my next trips. Heck, I think there are some jugs on Jumbo Love. I mean, from what I've heard. (laughs) I mean, who knows? (laughs) We'll ask Chris. (laughs) You never never know until you get on it. Uh, (laughs) Oh, that's so cool. And and I think a very universal experience is the hardest grade I climbed this past fall was 12D. I did Jesus Wept, which I loved. Such a cool cool route. I'm sure I'm sure you know it quite well. And I'm sure you flashed it. So don't tell me. It's fine. But it took me forever. It was a really hard project because I just it was not my style of, of climbing, but I had so much fun on it that I stuck with it. And it was very much that where it was max effort every time out there. And then on the send, like I came down and I felt fresh and I could have just done it a second time. You know, sometimes they just come together like that. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's just a friggin' to the death, to the chains. And that's fun experience too. But when you do lower off from something like that, typically the thing at the crag is like, all right, what's next? And so d- were, were you immediately, did your mind start to go towards like, oh, what else could I do here? Or did you allow yourself to bask in the accomplishment of sending 515A? I basked. <laughs> <laughs> With some wine and some cookies. I had, I had a beer in the sun and I was chilling and I don't think I tied in to another route in the remainder of the trip, which was just a few days, I was just happy. And I think, you know, it it was such a long process when you take into account all of the training and the planning and then the trip itself that I just wanted to enjoy it for a while instead of immediately switching into the next gear of like, what else can I send? What else can I stress over? I really just wanted to enjoy accomplishing a lifelong goal of mine. And that's exactly what I did. <laughs> All right, well, let's kind of dip into our final chapter here, which is things that that you're passionate about and that bring you purpose beyond your own rock climbing. And what is that for you? I work as a occupational therapist. That's what I did my doctorate in. And it's sort of a close cousin to physical therapy. But occupational therapists focus more on the day-to-day sorts of things that are meaningful to people. So as an example, if you had a stroke and maybe lost function in the left side of your body, you would work with someone like me to learn how to get dressed again. Or if you were a mother, how to hold your baby, how to do the things that are really meaningful and important in a day-to-day lens. That sounds like really rewarding work. It sounds like hard work as well. Obviously, the school that went into it was a long and probably arduous journey as well. Thankfully, people are required to go through a lot of training to do this kind of thing. What was it that drew you to that field of work? So my mom was sick when I was younger, and she was in the hospital in a rehab floor for an extended amount of time, and she worked with occupational therapists and physical therapists. But the occupational therapist scheduled her sessions at a time where I could attend after school because they were able to identify that having family be involved was going to be results in the best outcomes for my mom and be, you know, the most valuable for me as well. And because of that, they were some of the most influential healthcare providers in that time of my life. And it really inspired me. And I said, I want to do that. I want to work with people in the same way that they worked with me and my mom. And I sort of never wavered (laughs) from that plan. And now here I am working on a rehab floor, doing the same thing for other people. And it's really wonderful and fulfilling work. Oh, that's so cool to hear. Congratulations. And also thank you for doing that work. You're making the world a better place. What does that mean for your schedule? How does that work into your life also as a professional rock climber? 
So I'm really fortunate in that there's the opportunity to work uh, as what, what's called PRN, which basically means as needed. It's contract staff at maybe a hospital, which is what I do. And we basically are like the substitute teachers of the hospital. So when they have full-time staff call out, I can go in and support. Or if they have a really high census of patients and they need a little bit of extra help, then I can also go in. And right now they need help every day. So it's really flexible in that I can tell them which days I can go in that week. And because I have my training plan already written out, I know which days are my rest days. And so I go in on my rest days or maybe a half day if it's a training day. And, and it it's allows me a lot of freedom in my climbing. But I also get to still keep a foot in the door doing one of my other passions. <laughs> That's just so inspiring, Michaela. Really on a couple of levels, because I think for weekend warriors who have jobs either that we're passionate about or maybe just, you know, to pay the bills and support the family, uh, to see that somebody like yourself can perform at the absolute highest levels while holding a career, which seems quite rare for professional climbers, but is not rare for elite climbing weekend warriors. I think that's really inspiring. And then, of course, just the work that you're doing, the the, the career uh, that you've chosen is is really inspiring. So what a, what a joy it has been to talk with you. I'm motivated. I'm psyched. Maybe I'll try 50 moves on the moon board. Maybe I'll get to 12. We'll see how it goes. But this has just been all around such a, a, a wonderful, joyful, and insightful chat. Michaela, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. And that wraps up a super inspiring chat with someone who knows how to get stuff done on and off the rock, Michaela Kirsch. What did you all think of this one? Find us on IG at Michaela Kirsch and at The Struggle Climbing Show. Now for patrons and subscribers, your edit has a bunch of bonus content at the end here where Michaela shares what it was like to come out of a comp hiatus to compete in and win the recent Block comp in Chicago, how she manages fear while soloing 60 feet up, what it was like projecting next to Chris Sharma while he was working on Sleeping Lion and she was out on La Rambla, and the pros and cons of using YouTube to gain beta before traveling to a project. All that and more, just listen through to the end, and after the music stops, that bonus content will begin. Now in a second, I'm going to hit you with my takeaways from this insightful conversation with Michaela, but first, let's support the brands who have brought you this episode at zero cost. Give it up for Crimped. Take the guesswork out of your training by downloading the Crimped app right now for free. Hit that link in your notes or just search Crimped, C-R-I-M-P-D, in the App Store. I am beyond psyched to be partnering with Scarpa as they create the highest performing adventure footwear with a commitment to sustainability. Oh my gosh, I'm so pumped. Shop the whole collection at scarpa.com. Big love for our friends over at Fizzy Vantage, makers of research-based performance-enhancing nutrition for climbers. In Europe, you can find it on the Epic TV and Banana Fingers online shops, and in the U.S. at select gyms, and of course at fizzyvantage.com. Hit that link in your notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. And lastly, a chalky fist bump to Frictitious Climbing for change in the game with their revolutionary doorway mount for hangboards. Score 20% off a hangboard when you pick up that doorway mount over at FrictitiousClimbing.com. Thank you, sponsors, so much. Y'all are the best. All right, let's tuck into some takeaways here. I think my first one here with Michaela is about what's possible for a weekend warrior to accomplish. I mean, I'm really strapped for time. I got a job, I got a podcast, I got a family. I'm sure a lot of y'all listening right now are in a similar boat, whether you're like me or you're a full-time student with all sorts of extracurriculars like Michaela was for so many years, or perhaps, you know, something else is taking up your time. Whatever it is, Michaela shows us that if we have the drive and the discipline, we can accomplish great things in the small pockets of time that we're able to dedicate to this sport that we love so, so much. I just love seeing an elite climber with so many other things going on and still performing at her absolute top end. And to that point, clearly she's gaining a lot of training efficiencies by spending so much time on a board. She said 95% of her training is on a board. That was kind of mind-blowing for me. Now, I would need to drop the angle quite a bit if I'm going to get close to like 50 moves on the moon board like she recommended for me, but I can do that. One of my gyms has a 25-degree moon board, and so it's cool to see just how many styles and energy systems can be supported 
with thoughtful board training. So I'm gonna give some of that a shot here in the coming weeks. And if you do the same, drop me a note and let me know how it's going. All right, that clips the anchors on this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Real talk for just a second here, if I've still got your ear. If you are enjoying this show each week and the stuff that I'm putting out over on YouTube, and if you have a few bucks to spare each month, man, I would really, really love it if you would come aboard as a patron or subscriber. Not only does that keep me hustling away over here in the podcast slash utility closet at all hours of the day when I should be sleeping or remembering my kids' birthdays, but it also comes with some pretty rad perks, like over 20 hours of exclusive content from the likes of Chris Sharma, Alex Honnold, Nina Williams, Ravioli Biceps, Drew Mack, Dr. Tyler Nelson, Tom Randall. Oh my gosh, so many more. You can check it all out. And if you're not loving it, you can just quit at any time. There's no commitment or anything like that. If you listen on Apple, you can subscribe right there in your podcast player or for the rest of y'all, you can swing by patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to check out the tiers that I have. And this is a pretty cool new thing. If you're a Spotify person, you can now link your Patreon account with Spotify so that all the exclusive content loads natively right there in your Spotify app. Anyway, thank you for joining the struggle family if you can. Oh, and another little way that you could help out the show for zero cost is just to rate and review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. Good reviews lead to more downloads, which helps the show to get out there to more people, which is what I'm trying to do over here. It only takes a few seconds. It's right there on your phone. You get a little hit of dopamine knowing that you've done me a solid. So I'd really appreciate five stars if you feel the content is good. Thank you. I love you. I'm really psyched to share that The Struggle is carbon neutral in partnership with our friends over at the Honnold Foundation. They're just doing such amazing work, y'all, to bring clean energy to communities around the world while also empowering those communities. It's such inspiring stuff. Check it all out at honnoldfoundation.org and toss them some love if you can. And lastly, The Struggle is a proud member of the Plugtone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. I hope your training and climbing are going great. And if you are struggling like me, well, let's just remember that the struggle makes us stronger. <laughs>